Universal basic income is one of the hot topics of both philosophy and economics. Recently, we mentioned in the WhatsApp group, uh, what do people think about it? And in the words of Theo Lake, who replied, surely it's an inevitability, either that or a similar universal basic services, or we starve, I guess, which I thought was uh, <laughs> charmingly to the point. Today, we'll be discussing that both from a philosophical perspective, but then also from an economic perspective. So the why and the how we can kind of think of. And we have a very special surprise with us today. Obviously, I have Jake. Hello. That's, we, not, that's not the surprise. No, the surprise is we also have... Guy standing. I'm very pleased to be here. To glad to have some you. ideas. Guy, <laughs> thank you very much for being on. So Guy is obviously one of the eminent professors in the field. He's one of the co-founders of BN. Do you call it BN or B-I-E-N? Yeah, BN. Um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Which is, in fact, a play on well in French, that's right? Correct. That's why we called it that. Oh, yeah. lovely. Okay. He is a professor at SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies. You completed a PhD in economics in Cambridge back correct. in the day, correct? That's correct. And have held a number of positions, at, I believe, off the top of my head, Melbourne and Bath, amongst a couple yep. other yep. institutions, and is actually probably the preeminent academic force behind or proponent of basic income. So really the perfect person to be talking about. Yeah, we're really very honored to have you on the show. Thank you very much for coming on and putting up with our tech technical difficulties as we were setting up today. Oh my goodness, yeah, we, we, um, had a, we, had to, we held him for about half an hour. We're like, how does a roadcaster work? <laughs> it is one of those uh, podcast mixing stations. But let's get right into it. This is the Morality of Everyday Things, a philosophy podcast for everyday thinking. Uh, I'm Anthony, one of the hosts. I'm Jacob, one of the other hosts. Obviously on this show, we're really keen to explore ideas and topics of debate and the kind of things that you might discuss in your everyday lives and try and bring some nuance and thought to those kind of discussions. I think without further ado, let's get into the topic of today's episode, which is all about universal basic income. And because we have Guy on the show, I wanted to start with Guy. Could you tell us where you first became interested in UBI? Yeah, I think it's- How, it's, how did it start for you? It's interesting that you got into it way before it was a big thing, right? That's a... Yeah, I was doing my doctorate in economics at University of Cambridge in the 1970s, which dates me. <laughs> but, uh, but it was a time of an economics revolution. Mm. And it's associated now with Thatcherism coming mm. up and with Ronald Reagan. And it was clear to me, studying economics, that if they had their way and they were likely to, we would lurch into a new period of global capitalism mm -hmm. in which the insecurities of people would be intensified along with inequality. And the old welfare system of the middle decades of the 20th century, built by William Beveridge and previously Bismarck in mm -hmm. Germany, had reached the end of the road. It was clear to me then, and I believed very much in equality, mm -hmm. in justice, mm -hmm. and in freedom. And I really felt that this was the only way forward. So when we established Bien in 1986, wow. in September 1986, and I came up with the name, as it happens, over a beer. And <laughs> Many bunch, of the best ideas come out. That's <laughs> right. A bunch of young, radical philosophers and economists and activists. And uh, I suppose this was in a we, cafe in Paris or something. <laughs> no, it, was, it was in Belgium, as it happens. Oh. And we were having a beer and, and we said, why don't we establish this network so we can exchange ideas, mm. exchange thinking about it, and I think all of us at the time thought that this would last for a few weeks, a few months, <laughs> perhaps, exchanging letters and, and telephone calls and things. And I came up with a name, Bien, and Basic Income European Network. Oh, yeah, it used to stand for European, didn't it? Uh, that's, that's changed right. since, right? And I became the chair and co-chair because we always wanted a woman and a man as the co-chairs mm -hmm. until the point where we found that 
people were joining from all over the world. And in our Congress in Barcelona in mm. 2004, we proposed that it should be renamed mm -hmm. Bien, mm -hmm. except that the E became Earth. Yeah. So basic that. income earth network. So we kept our acronym. It just evolved. And, and it evolved. <laughs> and we have members now from all over the world, mm -hmm. including China and every part of the world. It's been a wonderful journey so far because when we were first discussing it, people genuinely said, these people are mad, bad, <laughs> and dangerous to know. Mm -hmm. You know, we're a bunch of quacks. <laughs> and the journey has been such that today we have over 150 pilots going on around the world, right. experiments. I believe there's one we'll in London back. at the moment. There's one in London right now, as a time well, of recording. We'll, right? we'll come back to that, no doubt. Mm. But they've just proposed two new ones mm. in England. Mm -hmm. But I participated in one that was turned into a television series some years ago. <laughs> and of all newspapers, the Times reviewed the series mm. of programs done on it. I would have expected the Times to be sort of scathingly hostile. <laughs> Instead of which, it said the Secretary of State of the Department of Work and Pensions should be obliged to see the series because <laughs> of what had happened. And we may right. come back to that later. So it's been a journey, and I'm advising the First Minister of Wales, Mark mm -hmm. Drakeford, a fantastic mm -hmm. man. And we've got a pilot going on in Wales today. Hundreds of young people, care leavers, people mm. coming out of orphanages and care homes are getting a mm. basic income, and we're evaluating it. And I've done pilots in various other countries, and many of them are broken down in tears to mm -hmm. see the outcomes. Think about that later. Fantastic. One of the things we always like to do on the show is whenever we start with any question, we think it's essential to define the key terms. Absolutely. So to avoid any sort of doubts there, would you be happy to give us the sort of yes. standard definition of universal basic income and particular emphasis on each of the components, the universal part, the basic part, and, yeah. and the income part? First of all, I never use the term universal basic income. Oh, really? You what? notice you've got a copy of one of my books. And it's called Basic Income. It is, yeah. And yeah, yeah, another yeah. book called Battling Eight Giants, Basic Income. Now, mm -hmm. I never used the term universal. And that's partly... Jake, you messed to, up the notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly partly, what I was just thinking. <laughs> it's partly because we must be politically feasible. Mm -hmm. And if you were in Britain and you imagined a universal basic income, immediately critics would say, what, all those migrants will be coming in, <laughs> flooding into the country, blah, blah, blah. And the pub chats, you can imagine the yeah, pub yeah. chats. So basically, you would have to say that this would be only for usual legal residents of the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And migrants, they would have to wait for a certain period mm -hmm. of legal residence before they would become entitled to it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't help migrants. Of mm -hmm. course you should, but that should be dealt with separately. Are you coming at that from the point of view of avoiding it becoming too politicized? Oh. I, I think it's political realism yeah. and also the universalistic nature mm -hmm. is important. Mm -hmm. And the key parts of the term is a basic income mm -hmm. is an individual, notice it's paid to an individual, not to a household or mm -hmm. a family mm -hmm. unit. It's an individual economic right. Mm -hmm. right. And it's paid individually. It's paid individually unconditionally mm -hmm. in terms of so-called contributions or so-called behavioral demands that you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to receive it. Of course, you've got to obey the law, but mm -hmm. that should be treated separately. 
quite mm-hmm. a separate issue. It's paid equally to men and to women, mm-hmm. regardless of marital status, age, work status. Mm-hmm. And it's paid to a lesser amount for a child. Mm-hmm. So that can be arranged. It's universalistic in that the desirability is that everybody who is a legal resident receives the basic income. And it's non-withdrawable. This is a t- term that I discuss in the books. Right. In other words, you can't lose it mm-hmm. because some bureaucrat decides that they don't like you or you, you <laughs> haven't done what yep. they think you should do, etc. like that. It's your right. Yep. It's not an act of charity. Mm-hmm. It's a citizenship right. And just to check then, so when we, I mean, using talking about the term basic, in your mind, when you're being a proponent of this, what are you thinking of as basic? What is the, the threshold it's supposed to reach in order to satisfy that requirement? As you can imagine, over the years, I've been asked that question thousands of times. <laughs> and I suppose people are normally looking to isolate in a, a, a sort of numerical answer, but I suppose at oh, this point, we're happy with the principles, right? Yeah, no, principles. Yes, I want to answer the question, but mm. for my mind, the principle is that you've got to be giving people something that makes a substantive difference right. to their life. Right. I'd have assumed it was such that they could actually survive on it. Well, yes, exactly. Right. That That is the first point. but. My view is that going to have, for practical political reasons, start mm-hmm. with a low level, yep. a lower level than I would mm-hmm. wish, right? And then you gradually build it up as mm-hmm. the funding is mobilized, as behavioral reactions right. are tracked to a point where it might reach, say, 300 pounds a week or 400 pounds a week. That would be regarded as a good base, an yeah. anchor. Maybe of not course, in London. <laughs> no, of course not. Of course not. But to you or me, that amount is not going to radically change your life. But out there, there are a hell of a lot of people who that sum of money would make an enormous difference mm. oh, to their life. And that's what you're hoping to do. Right. Okay. Now, you asked me just for the definition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For me, it's something that you build up yeah. and it's becomes an anchor of a new income distribution system. Got you. We'll come back to the economics of it. You've talked about a few kind of philosophical concepts, certainly in, in, in the realm of political theory. So you've mentioned rights, you've mentioned equality, you've mentioned justice. And so just to kind of understand your basis for why you think universal basic income should exist and why people should have a right to it, what do you generally think of as the obligation of the state to its citizens? What are the kind of premises that lead you on to the conclusion that this is a necessary outcome? What are the things we're trying to achieve? with the collective project of state? Well, the way I like to approach the rationale for a basic income Mm -hmm. is that fundamentally the demand for it is ethical. Mm -hmm. It is not instrumental. Of course, it is instrumental in the sense it would reduce poverty and reduce inequality if well-designed, but that's not the, the really fundamental reason for it. I start with saying that the there is a threefold mm-hmm. justification. The first is it's a matter of common justice. Mm-hmm. Okay. And here we've been helped by the analysis of people like Tom Paine and mm-hmm. various others. The commons mm-hmm. is what belongs to all of us yeah. as equals. And I've written several books, The Plunder of the Commons, and my new book, The Blue Common. Mm-hmm. And the commons were first established by the Justinian Codex mm-hmm. of uh, AD uh, 429. The Emperor Justinian came to power and he didn't understand the complexity of all the laws 
of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. So he asked the jurists to come up with a schema, which became the basis of common law ever mm -hmm. since. And the Justinian Codex differentiated between four types of property. Right. Right. Property rights. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Private property, public property, state property, nobody's property, mm -hmm. res nullius, and common property. Right. And the common property is what belongs to everybody equally, and that the government has to be the steward or the trustee to respect the public trust doctrine, what became known as the public trust doctrine, and the principle of intergenerational equity. And the public trust doctrine says that mm. the government or the sovereign including the monarchy, mm -hmm. has to preserve the commons mm -hmm. for the commoners and to make sure that others preserve it. And the intergenerational equity principle means that you must hand it down to the next generation without diminishing its value. Now, then, those two principles went forward into Magna Carta of 1217 and the Charter of the Forest. And these mm -hmm. are the two bedrocks of the British constitution and democracies all over the world. If I talk about Magna Carta wherever <laughs> I go, people know about it. They may not know the, the intricacies, but both of those charters, which were incidentally sealed on the same day, November the 6th, 1217, became the basis of justice. Mm -hmm. And they said everybody has a right to subsistence in the common. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it went forward into the philosopher of private property rights, John Locke, mm -hmm. went forward with his three provisos. People on the far right and who are libertarians and they always talk about sanctity of private property rights, forget that John Locke, who mm -hmm. was their spiritual godfather, mm -hmm. actually wrote his three provisos. Mm -hmm. He said, you can only take land or whatever else is the commons if you leave as good and as enough for everybody else. That's okay. a little bit like the country code. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, there is their principal philosopher, but they forget the three providers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For me, this is a matter of common justice because mm -hmm, right. systematically throughout our history, and this is not only in Britain, but we're, we're talking about Britain in particular, there has been taking of the common. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Under the Tudors, they took millions of acres of land that mm -hmm. had been part of the commons, had been accepted mm -hmm. as part of the commons. We have the myth of Robin Hood and all of that mm -hmm. stuff, but they had been accepted as such. And by the church, by everybody, by the monarchy. And then in the, under the Victorians, they took a whole lot more. And in my new book, I'd say, look, in the 20th century, they've converted the sea, which has always been accepted since Justinian Codex. The sea and the seabed mm. is all part of our commons. doesn't mm. belong to any individual. Mm. But yet they had an enclosure of the seabed in 1982. 138 million square kilometers, so that this country now has 27 times as much sea area as land area. <laughs> and they've once you enclose, then it's very easily possible to privatize. Mm -hmm. right. okay, you turn it over to corporations, you give 
rights to fishing water or rights to minerals from the seabed to corporates. Hey, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. That's not yours to give, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's So common justice for me is fundamental because if they've taken from us, mm -hmm. we should be compensated. That's the thinking broadly behind it. Ironically, a very uh, libertarian or right-wing thought in itself, right? it, it could be. It yep. could be. Except that a libertarian would tend to emphasize private property rights mm -hmm. and not, I rarely hear them talk about common property <laughs> rights, right? <laughs> and common property should be given priority over private. Mm -hmm. So that if you give, Duke of Buclos has given 277,000 acres of prime land in mm -hmm. this country. What did he do to deserve that 277,000? Well, he's the 10th <laughs> yeah. descendant of an illegitimate child of Charles II. Yeah. Now, I mean, what good job, sort Tim, of... Good job, He really earned it. You know? and, and, and it's the same with various other dukes. Mm. And not mm. only do those dukes get given through inheritance vast tracts of beautiful mm -hmm. land and properties, but then the government gives them subsidies to help them pay to, to mm -hmm. keep them. Mm -hmm. Now, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. So if you want to talk to me about justifying a basic income, let's start by saying, what a minute, what about all these people who've done zero mm. to get it? I'm very interested that you started saying actually that it's ethical reasons rather than instrumental, because I suppose a lot of the arguments would typically focus on the instrumental elements sure. of what it can help us sure. achieve. But if, if you were to sum up that point, you'd essentially say that the ethical justification is it's about social justice. Remember at the beginning, I said my ethical rationale is mm -hmm. threefold. Right. Okay? So the justice argument mm -hmm. is the first one. Sure. And that there's not only common justice. It's also, if you're religious, I'm not religious, but if you're religious- We're, we're not either, for, for yeah. the record. <laughs> if you're religious, then you can say that God has given us unequal talents. Mm -hmm. yep. And a basic income is equivalent to giving a compensation to those who don't have the talent of making money or don't mm. have it. So it's that. Now, I noticed that Pope Francis, the papacy actually, mm -hmm contacted me uh, when oh, yeah. they were thinking of it. I'm not religious at all, as, you, as I've said. And he's come, out, he's, come out, <laughs> he's come out in favor of a basic income. Wow, that's he's, a big he name. Wrote a letter, he wrote a letter, a public letter, in which he says that it is right to share the benefits of humanity. Because, I mean, your wealth or income and mine mm -hmm. is far more to do with the efforts and achievements of the many generations before us than anything mm. we do ourselves. Mm. Even Warren Buffett has admitted that. And therefore, in a sense, it's a matter of common justice, a matter of intergenerational justice. But there's a third part of justice, which mm -hmm. is very important in the 21st century, which is that it's a matter of ecological justice. Yes. Right. Yeah. Ecological and justice, because the rich do most of the pollution. Mm -hmm. The poor bear the costs in terms of ill health and so on, yeah. degraded environments and so on. And so in a sense, it's a matter of compensating relatively low-income people mm -hmm. for a loss of ecological environment. So that's the first theme. The justice second, is the first theme. And it justice. breaks down in different ways, but that's right. essentially justice. The subparts of justice. For mm. me, justice is important. Right. Yes. Vital. And so generally, it's the job of the state to ensure that there is a just society and a just society respects commons. It was interesting a lot when you were talking about the commons. Now let, me, I, let me interrupt there go, for go. a second. Let me interrupt for a second. Many of your philosophers, so you know 
what I'm about to say, but many people mistake the state for the government. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, the government has responsibility mm -hmm. for preserving the commons and developing mechanisms. The state consists of all the institutions of governance, including mm -hmm. civil society institutions, which make up the ensemble mm -hmm. of, of the state. I like to keep that distinction because right. what we're saying is that the government has responsibility for developing the mechanism mm -hmm. that respect justice, respect the commons and respect the other things we're sure. going to talk about. Yep. I was curious, it sounded like the way we were talking about commons was, I largely agree, but it was so far-reaching that the immediate thought I had was, so how do you have just private property in a context where basically all land in a way is something common? Well, I'm not disputing that if land is enclosed and privatized, mm -hmm. that private owner becomes the private owner. Right. Right. But it's the process by which land has Land is one example. It's not the only example. Mm -hmm. Land has been transferred to private property. That is saying, okay, you've got your private property, but you've got it and you're benefiting from the increased value mm -hmm. because land is concentrated mm -hmm. and you haven't done anything and the value of land has mm -hmm. gone up as it has enormously. Right. So in a sense, it's the ground rent. You should be paying as compensation to the community. And I think that that principle is something that justifies moving towards charging a ground rent for, mm -hmm. for people. And okay, so you were saying justice was the first theme, but there were three themes that were the sort of ethical justifications for a basic income. What were the other two? The second theme is that all politicians, all philosophers, all economists, everybody I know says they believe in freedom. You can't have freedom if you're chronically short of material resources. It's, it's like when people say, oh, people are free in minimum wage arguments. People say, oh, people are free not to take the job. And it's like, you're not, though, yeah, if you're, you're an not. economic slave, right? Exactly. You have to do what's necessary to survive. Right. And I think it's morally reprehensible of politicians mm -hmm. to tell people that they have to behave in certain ways or they won't get in it. Mm -hmm. I really think that when actually people are reduced to just needing to survive. Okay. Mm -hmm. That beginning the discussion, you quoted a very interesting statement. Mm -hmm. So freedom for a philosopher, there's three types of freedom. Mm -hmm. There's the, what you could call libertarian freedom, the freedom to choose, mm -hmm. freedom to say no mm -hmm. to an exploitative relationship or whatever. The freedom, which is the freedom that's typically talked about by neoclassical economists by conservatives and and so on that freedom mm -hmm. freedom to be a consumer mm -hmm. that freedom would be enhanced by a, a basic income and fair enough but for me the other two forms of freedom are more important mm -hmm. than the libertarian the first of the other two is what's sometimes called liberal freedom mm -hmm associated with, with people I cite in the book, John Stuart Mill and mm -hmm. Green and so on of the 19th century. And this is the freedom to be moral. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, it's vitally important to enable people to make decisions because they believe that is the correct thing to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And you can't do that if you're chronically insecure and lack resources because you can't be moral. Right. Famous statement by Bertolt Brecht, first food 
then morals. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's a lot of truth in that aphorism. So for me, this is important. It's the liberal freedom. Mm -hmm. You want to enable people to make decisions because they think it's right. And is this, okay. in economic terms, would you be saying you're just enabling people to make unconstrained choices? Is that? Yeah. It's not unconstrained. Think, is is it know, more along the kind of idea of like positive freedom? You know, if you, if you talk about uh, yeah, well, I, that, that with, uh, with Berlin, yeah, Berlin yeah. I, know, I know where you're coming from, but yeah. I mean, in that statement, I think it's more than that. I right. think it is a genuine freedom mm -hmm. that, that, okay, now you can be more. Then if you have basic, income, mm -hmm. then you have a greater chance to be moral. The third freedom is what's sometimes called Republican freedom. Mm -hmm. And Republican freedom means freed from unaccountable authority over you. Mm -hmm. okay. okay. Be it a landlord, parent, a spouse, an employer. Mm -hmm. A woman is not free if she has to ask her husband whether she can do X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm. even if she knows that 99% of the time he'll say yes. A woman is only free if she can make that decision herself, regardless of what anybody else thinks, mm -hmm. right? That freedom from the people in positions of unaccountable power over you is an important type of freedom, very mm -hmm. important. So that's the second ethical justification, in my view. Freedom. So just to recap, that's justice and then freedom. Yeah. So what's number three? Well, let me just round up that Please, point yeah. on freedom. Mm. We need to enhance freedom in society where there are increasing capacities of the state mm -hmm. and employers to use artificial intelligence systems, mm. algorithms. The panopticon state is growing. It's a real fear that we should all be wanting to tackle. And you want freedom from that power. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. So that's an important thing. The third ethical reason is that a basic income definitionally, even if it's the amount you're getting is below what would give you dignity or mm -hmm. uh, capacity to be completely independent of other income, even if it wasn't that, by definition, it enhances basic security. Mm -hmm. Now, basic security is a human need. We all want basic security. You can't function properly without basic security, which is different from total security. Right. Total security, you get you're slothful or you would <laughs> be careless, <laughs> be careless. But basic security we need. Now, basic security is a public good because what we economists call a public good, don't mm -hmm. want to get technical, but it's a public good in the sense that if you have it, Mm -hmm. It doesn't deprive me of having it. Yeah. With a private good, if you have the private good, I, I can't have it, as it yep. were. right? But it's also a superior public good because if everybody in the community has basic security, the value to each and every person in that community of that basic security goes up. Mm. But there's a very, very important lesson we've learned from psychologists. Mm-hmm. Psychologists have shown beyond any doubt that if you don't have basic security, your mental bandwidth shrinks. I know, I've seen studies where people score lower on IQ tests. Absolutely. Your IQ goes down. Mm -hmm. And it's due to the stress and the incapacity to make rational decisions. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't want to be justifying crime or anything stupid like that, mm. but it is unfair, morally unfair for governments to expect people who are chronically poor and insecure mm -hmm. 
to make socially responsible decisions all the time and mm. penalize them if they don't. First food, because then morals, right? Because <laughs> their mental bandwidth has been shrunk by mm. their reality. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And and for me, this, this is enormously important today mm -hmm. because, as I've argued in the books, we are living in an age of economic uncertainty. Yeah, yeah definitely. That is something that is profoundly threatening existentially. I mean, that's fantastic. We've tackled a lot of the big sort of themes of why. Is there anything you wanted to pick up on there? And oh, there's a few thoughts that I thought it kind of brought to mind for me. But I've sorry, when you when you spoke, <laughs> you immediately blanked my mind. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> you, 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 anything um, you want to add? Well, in the notes, I had let's zoom in on sort of why these different themes are important. You've touched yeah. on all of them, but I think you've you've actually done a pretty thorough job yeah, of that. I want to find out about the third justification. I just want to also touch on so you've so far mentioned justice, freedom, and also Security. this kind of this kind of concept that like it's not just freedom from constraints, but a freedom to basically be a, a fully responsible person because you are not under not just physical or literal constraints, but actual the reality of needing food and things can mm -hmm. force you into certain decisions. And it reminded me of uh, discussions we've had previously around we have a lot of friends who, for example, will choose work that's not particularly meaningful because they have this obligation, even when you're actually relatively wealthy, it's become so expensive, uh, particularly as a, you know, a sub 40 year old nowadays to try and get on the property ladder. People end up making choices, career choices that are maybe suboptimal, maybe not as moral as they should be, quote unquote, to the extent your work choices should be moral. You're not pursuing something that you think could actually be additive to society. Instead, you're pursuing something that maximizes for salary, right? And you're saying basically we should remove that constraint so that people can live moral lives in a way that kind of makes me think of I suppose an ancient Greek kind of ideal of like mm. a life well lived. That was just what it was reminiscent of. It's not really a question. It's more of a statement. <laughs> no, but, but, but you're touching on a very important set of issues, which we could come around to in a different context later. Mm. But I've just finished a book which is coming out called The Politics of Time. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it goes back to ancient Greece mm -hmm. because in ancient Greece, Time uses mm -hmm. divided in, into five. Mm -hmm. Labor was what was done by the slaves and the panosites. I'm not defending the system at all in this, but it, the, the conceptualization mm -hmm. is interesting. So you had labor as one type of activity, right? For exchange value, right? Mm -hmm. But that was differentiated from work. Mm -hmm. And work was what you did with your relatives and friends around the home. Interesting. Okay? And it involved care and, and everything like that. Mm -hmm. And then besides that, you had recreation, mm -hmm. you know, sports and things like that. And then you had a lovely concept of chole or scole. And that meant a combination of education mm -hmm. and public participation in the life of the polis, yep. the life mm -hmm. of the city, the life of your community. Mm -hmm. It combined these two phenomena. And right. then Aristotle had a wonderful concept called urgia. Now, urgia in modern parlance is called laziness. <laughs> now, for ancient Greece, that was one of the most valuable uses of your time. Yeah. And it went forward with Cato, Roman, of course. Cato said, never is a man more active than when he's doing nothing. <laughs> and the reasoning is very simple. When you're not scurrying around being busy or doing alienating mm. jobs, 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 mm -hmm. that is the time when your mind has space and you can start contemplating and thinking about more important subjects, the caring for your loved ones, the building of a community, mm. the construction of your own 
character. Mm. And I think that that is perfectly valid. And that goes back to your basic income. Mm. Because a lot of people say, oh, if you gave people a basic income, they'd all <laughs> sit in their asses and do nothing. We, we, need do, we need to cut this and put this at the intro of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like Terry Jones from Yeah, Monty well, Biden. that's right. <laughs> but, but that's we've now seen that mm. that's not the case. Um, the human being mm. has a proclivity, a desire to be creative and work and to care. And the fact that a person has a basic income mm. would lead them, as we found in our experiment, mm. to do different types of work. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest deficits we've got today, and we saw mm. this in COVID, is called the care deficit, mm. yep. right? The care deficit. Because most people, they have to do these wretched jobs, which don't give them any satisfaction. They usually get a low income and all the rest mm. of it goes, mm. and the dangers of all that, yeah. and the stress. And they can't spend enough time looking after their mother. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. Or raising their children. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's a matter of basic income mm -hmm. actually increases work. I want that to be an emphasis, yep. not reduces. It, it's pure prejudice mm -hmm. by people who were given pocket money all their up their lives and mm -hmm. given inheritance and things. And they say, <laughs> I mean, I'm not joking. This is what you get, right? Yep. Yeah. Now, for me, this is garbage mm -hmm. and they should be mocked. Mm -hmm. well, where's your evidence? Where's mm -hmm. your evidence? Well, if I gave you a hundred pounds a week, would you going to stop working? Of no. course not. <laughs> because all we do is we want to improve the lives of our children, our mm -hmm. friends, yeah. our communities. You want a better standard of living. Mm -hmm. So, for me, this is an additional reason, mm. an ethical reason, a social reason. Mm. We want more people to spend more time on chole, mm. on political participation, not in a party political necessarily, no, but no. in in your community life. Yeah, mm. I actually, uh, recent, I know uh, you probably know what I'm going to say. Mm. A friend of ours is a teacher and he recently shared, you can become a governor of a school. And those are the sort of interactions that people would have more freedom to do if you had more literal free time. I'd also like to pick up what you were saying there really, this is more of a statement than a question, but you know, your response is welcome. I think it's one of the most challenging parts I think of UBI is the concept of what people deserve, right? And I think part of that is that there's this capitalist capture of our perspective of what life is really mm -hmm. in that we, according to economics, all we want to do is nothing and spend money and consume. And so it's we what work. what they want us to e do. Exactly. And so, and so we work so that we can do those things, right? And it does require this kind of fundamental understanding of actually what motivates people is entirely different to this model of all I want to do is nothing and consume. <laughs> so like, yeah. actually, I want to live a life, an examined life, well-lived and really more people to kind of have this, I guess a, a simple thought experiment is if money weren't a factor, what would you do? Go and do that. <laughs> it occurs to me that what we could have here is a bit of a measurement problem because everything you were saying earlier, you had sort of your labor, your work, your jure, and all, all these different sort of distinctions you gave. Mm. Only labor is picked up in GDP. Absolutely. And that's the kind of, that, that, that tends to be what people focus on maximizing. But uh, as you correctly point out, things like care isn't picked up in GDP, but obviously has massive social value. Again, I'm trying to formulate this into a question, but I suppose the question is, do you agree with that? And in I that mean, case, I, what I, place I, do you think work I, should have? I've been arguing for the whole of my adult life. And mm. that's why I worked in the International Labour Organization. And we need a reconceptualization. Mm. I, yeah, I think it is that level, isn't it? It's yeah, almost course, a sort of paradigm absolutely. shift that we're calling yeah, absolutely. for. Absolutely. And it's sexist. Mm -hmm. It mm. is stupid that if a woman looks after her own child, she's not working. 
Mm. If she looks after your child and you pay her, she's working. I mean, come on. Simple solution, pay your wife. A Martian, a Martian, a Martian coming down to the world would think this is nutty, and it is nutty, mm. but it's also sexist mm. because it means that the work that more women do in more than any other form of work is regarded as zero value. Mm-hmm. We're now in a time mm. when the leading politicians in this country are saying they're going to maximize growth, mm-hmm. GDP growth. Oh, it's a sort of macho signal. Well, you can maximize growth by shifting everyone into low paid jobs, mm-hmm. jobs, jobs, jobs. But I suspect that the quality of life would mm. go down if mm. you did that. Mm. So GDP should me, be correlative, not, uh, not the measure uh, itself. Uh, it, we, we should be more adult about what it is we want mm-hmm. from living. And for me, I want everybody to have freedom. I want people yep. to be able to have security and I want people to be treated with justice. Mm-hmm. Now, the word deserving mm-hmm. is weaponized yes. by this government and by successive conservative and other mm-hmm. uh, government. You're deserving or you're not deserving. Mm-hmm. Now, this is judgmental. It is patronizing. Mm-hmm. and is inevitably arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's completely fictitious. You know, right. you have George Osborne famously saying that there are some people who are sitting in behind curtains while everybody else is going out. You know, this is this co- simple imagery mm-hmm. leads to a uh, fascistic type of, mm-hmm. of thinking uh, in the in the long term because mm-hmm. you aren't doing what I want you to do, and mm-hmm. therefore you will be punished. Mm-hmm. We have that with universal credit. At mm-hmm. the moment, I don't know if you're deserving more than him or the other way around. I don't have <laughs> <I am>. the <laughs> exactly. And needs more help. <laughs> I, I don't. I should not be arrogant enough to mm. think that I can decide. I don't know what's your background, mm-hmm. and you can not de- design any social policy system mm-hmm. that wouldn't result in a travesty of injustice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what you're getting with universal credit at the moment. And I suppose one of the issues with that, which I guess is a key part of basic income, is credit and other sort of aspects of the welfare state are means tested, whereas a basic income wouldn't be. And why is that an important element of you? Well, of your I, I often treat this question of, well, if you gave everybody basic income, uh, that would be a disincentive for them to take jobs. Mm. And I say, on the contrary, the existing system of social assistance in Britain and in other countries mm-hmm. is a gross disincentive for people to take jobs. If I say to you that there are going to be a marginal tax rate of 80% on incomes, mm-hmm. okay, you would immediately, and so would all the listeners, would say, oh, that's, that's going to put people off working and investing and Mm. saving, that's most unfair. I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree. But that is what we have with means testing universal credit. Because I suppose effectively there's a cutoff point, right? Exactly. What it means is if you manage to get your universal credit, which is a lot of people don't, if you try and work hard and get an earned income, you lose your benefits. Mm -hmm. So even the DWP, the Department of Work and Pensions, admits Mm-hmm. that it's well over 60% tax rate in effect, but mm-hmm. it's actually more than more like 80% uh, that I've calculated mm. and others have calculated. So that is the disincentive for taking jobs. Yeah. And whereas mm. the upper income groups 
have a marginal tax rate of 45% at the very most. And they, mm. they can wangle, practice. Yeah. <laughs> wangle, wangle a, lot of, a lot of tax reliefs to get much less than that. Mm. So the existing system is mm. what's fundamentally wrong. Whereas a basic income, it says, you get your basic income, and then from the first pound beyond that, you pay the standard rate of tax. So you've removed the poverty trap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's called the poverty trap. Anybody who says this will be a disincentive, I say, well, what are you going to do about the existing system? Mm-hmm. Okay. And if you defend the existing system, don't talk to me about disincentives, please. Mm-hmm. It seem, yeah, it does seem like it's just Pareto, an improvement, right, yeah. on, on, on what we currently have. I, I'm conscious of time just because yeah, we, we wanted to uh, tackle on the, the one hand the sort well. of why and then also get into the practicalities. But I suppose if I were to sum up the section we've done so far and we've talked about the sort of whys, the two arguments against which we were just discussing there, there's, there's a big question about sort of incentives to work and also self-determination and would, would basic income put off people doing that? And I suppose we've heard your views on why it would not. The next big question, which would link to the following theme is, and the one that's always levied against basic income is uh, affordability. So maybe that's a good way to bridge into the question of how it would look. But Ant, sorry, you look like you've got a question. Let's focus on the philosophy stuff for a little bit. Two quick thoughts. So let's not spend too long on it. But just curious, it's interesting that you have focused very much on a, on a specific policy point rather than, you know, a, an ideology per se. And generally, I, I think a lot of this thought when talking about it, it's reminiscent to me of a lot of kind of neo-Marxist thinking around like rethinking how people should live, what people should value. You know, it's not just work to consume. And also your ability to create output isn't your measure of value as a person, right? So just curious, where would you position, to the extent that you're comfortable saying, my guess is that you prefer to focus on the policy because you know you care about outcomes as opposed to aligning with certain schools of thought. But where generally would you say this kind of fits in with other schools or ideologies? When we established Bien mm-hmm. back in 1986, I was determined that we should be a broad church Mm -hmm. organization, allowing for people on the political right and political left, not extremes, but people with a variety of ideological positions. I think as as a policy, it can accommodate a lot of different viewpoints, right? You could be a libertarian and and be like, this this maximizes freedom. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, sometimes I'm on the left politically, Mm -hmm. and I make no bones about it, but I've fully accept that just as the religious people can see a reasoning, just mm. as ecologists, and I hope I'm, we're all ecologists and feminists, mm. and I hope we're all feminists, would see the justifications in a different way. Right. And I think that's fair enough. And as an economist, mm. we haven't talked about the economics, but we need an automatic mm. macroeconomic stabilizer, as we called. Yep. Now, mm. having a basic income system would allow the government to use part of the basic income as an automatic stabilizer for the economy. So you'd have resilience at national mm. economic level mm-hmm. as well as at the individual level. Yep. I think that's very important. So for me, it allows for a variety of political positions. Mm-hmm. Commonly, it is my some of my left friends who come to this, they say, it's a thin end of a wedge you idiot because if the <laughs> libertarians nice. <laughs> the, the libertarians will will use it to dismantle all the welfare state and say yeah, if you've got your basic income go away blah 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 wait a minute first of all we've seen them dismantling the welfare system <laughs> uh, and they haven't they haven't been doing it because there's a basic income second if we're strong enough socially mm-hmm to get people having a basic income. We'll be strong enough to get a defense 
mm-hmm. of good public services. Mm-hmm. I believe in good public services, but I'm not a paternalist. And that's mm-hmm. why I don't like the universal basic services rhetoric because I think it's highly paternalistic. Because uh, it prescribes what, it, what? what service mm-hmm. do you want and what service mm-hmm. do you want? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can either have total everything is a, a basic service because Jimmy over here likes a bus and you like a tube and you like to go on a bicycle. I mean, it's very paternalistic because you have to be selective. Right. So the UBS advocates say, and now their focus is on bus services. Mm. Well, many people don't use buses mm. or don't have access to buses. Mm. How what's a universal basic service as far as food's concerned? Mm. Well, we've mm. got it in food kitchens and, and, and food banks, but it's terrible. Mm. I don't want people to be relying on that sort of thing. It's mm. a charity state gone mad and the quality goes down. I worked in the Soviet Union at the end of the 1980s and I oh, also wow. worked a bit in China where they had universal basic services. Mm-hmm. And one thing you can be absolutely certain about is the basic is pretty basic. <laughs> the standards go down because people have to be grateful for whatever they're given. Yeah. So for me, that's I believe in freedom. I believe in social solidarity. And I believe that the experiments where we've done them with whole communities have strengthened Mm. social solidarity. And that I think is very important. It's interesting to hear you say that because I know Ant is more of a fan of the basic services. Not so much I am a fan of, but it was one of my questions. I I think it was because I listened to the Ed Miliband podcast and he did UBA and UBS. And we'll come to the economics part. I did a, a podcast with Ed Oh, really? Of my new book. But he's told me many times that he favors basic income. So I'll hold him to the flames if he becomes. (laughs) (laughs) Take Um, that, Ed, if you're listening. (laughs) So just to summarize a little bit of the thought around that, then it sounds like as well from some of the premises that you've given, when you think about morality, one of our obligations to other people is to help other people maximize their freedom and live examined lives. Is that a fair characterization of of what you've said so far? I don't like the idea. That this would be a statutory obligation. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't think I like the sound of, you know, you have to be doing X, Y. I know this is not what you were saying mm. personally, but that a lot of people take that argument to yeah. the next stage. It's, yeah, it's difficult to say, oh, you must live an examined life without prescribing your own conception <laughs> of what that, that would be. It becomes like paternalistic. Yeah. I mean, I think this asks questions about education, how our civilization develops, Mm -hmm. and how we learn our ethics and practice our ethics. Mm -hmm. I think from a social policy point of view, you have to create the institutional fabric that induces people to want to behave in a more moral way. Mm -hmm. And it's an ontological, I mean, philosophically, it's an ontological process. And what an ontological process means is you're moving towards something Mm -hmm. that you want. Mm -hmm. You can't know what the ideal is. Mm -hmm. The trouble with prescription state saying you must do X, you must do Y, it leads to a dictatorship by the bureaucrats or yep. by a minority or whoever gets command of the yep. state. That's the danger. Maybe the, the word obligation kind of threw it a bit there. I just mean, it sounds like when you think about morality, one of the imperatives that you have as a human being to other human beings from what you're describing, and so kind of a political or moral imperative is around freedom. Uh, and it, it fits into that similarly related to that concept of justice. So I think maybe we'll draw a little line under the why and we yes. can start to move into the how. Let's, um, um, let's take a quick is, break there and then um, yeah, uh, um, thank you very much for all your ideas on that, by the way. I yes. really appreciate that. For you, the listeners, this episode will now end, but don't worry. There's a part two coming 
and for us, I mean, we're still here. It's going to be like a two second break and then we'll go straight into it. And we don't need to do a whole intro thing. I think it's okay. Part one, part two. Let's do that.